Our sermon this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find John chapter 1 on page 833. We've been going through the first 34 verses of the, cha- of the, gos- the first chapter of the Gospel of John for the last month during, during the Advent season. We've been thinking specifically about the doctrine of the Incarnation, the theological doctrine of the Incarnation, uh, which is the doctrine of God, the sovereign, eternal God, becoming uh, a person, entering into human history as a human being uh, and becoming a part of his creation. It's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And so we've seen in the first few verses, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, that Jesus is the Word of God. He's, he's fully God, uh, you know, e- eternal in his existence, co-eternal with the Father. We kind of saw the doctrine of the Trinity baked into the first five verses because it, it specifically uh, noted that Jesus is God and that Jesus is with God. And so we kind of see that tension of, of Jesus being with God the Father, distinct from, separate from, different than God the Father, and yet it also says that Jesus is God. And so there's that kind of unity and diversity kind of baked into the Trinity. We see that kind of implied and mentioned in the first few verses of John chapter 1. Starting in verses 6 and following, we uh, meet uh, John the Baptist, whose job was to bear witness about the light, right? So God gave John the Baptist a special mission. I want you to spend your life, devote your life, not to making yourself famous, not to investing in your own glory and your own, you know, reputation, but to invest in Jesus's glory and Jesus's reputation. You will know that you succeeded, John the Baptist, if you die and no one knows your name, no one cares about you at all, but people know and care about Jesus because of who you are and because of what you, uh, how you, you know, instructed them and exhorted them. So we met John the Baptist then. Then we saw the doctrine specifically of the, the, the doctrine of the incarnation in verse 14 and following. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, verse 9, the light was coming into the, the world. We see as Jesus, the light of the world and the word that became flesh, as he came into the world, he revealed God's uh, glory in verse 14. He revealed God's grace and God's truth in verse uh, 14 and, and 17. So we've kind of seen a lot of the mechanics of God coming into the world, God entering into human history, God becoming a man, kind of what happened uh, and, and how it happened. And today we're going to continue with that same theme of looking at the doctrine of the incarnation and what happened and how it happened, but we're also going to look specifically at why it, it happened, right? What was the purpose for which Jesus came into the world? What was his mission? What did he intend to accomplish? Why was it necessary? Why couldn't Jesus have just done, why couldn't, whatever it was that Jesus came to do, why couldn't he do that from his throne in heaven? Why did he have to go out of his way to come here into human history? And how do we, as the people of God, recognize Jesus as the person who came what he intended to do? These are the kinds of questions that we're going to look at and tackle in these last uh, five, six verses of our sermon series in John chapter one. So I'm going to read through John 1, 29 to 34, 
And then I'll pray, and then we will get to work. It says, the next day, he, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you uh, that we get to read your word and study your word and meditate on your word and um, seek to apply your word in our lives. God, there is, uh, apart from your word, uh, I or anyone else here, this church has nothing to offer your people, right? Uh, the, the prospect of uh, gathering each week to hear from a, a creature, a flawed creature, give his best uh, ideas and insights is, is uh, of, of no value to any, any of us. Nothing that any of us could conceive of or come up with, no matter how impressive or clever it is, um, could, could, could help us to be reconciled to you. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, we can dwell on and listen to and be shaped by your word that is perfect and right and true and powerful and effective. And so we come this morning and we gather around it and we sit under it and we aspire to listen to it and to be affected by it and to obey it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. The next day, he, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who's writing this, this book, but John the Baptist, the character he's writing about, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. Um, the next day presumably means the day after what, it, what had just happened, which we read about in verses 19 to 28, which was John the Baptist kind of receiving this delegation from uh, Jerusalem who were coming to ask him about his uh, ministry. Who are you? Who do you think you are to, to do the, the ministry that you're doing, to baptize the way that you are doing? And so presumably the, exact, the next day after those people from Jerusalem came to ask John the Baptist those questions, that's where we pick up here. <coughs> and the next day, uh, this, this uh, phrase, the next day, starts uh, several time indicators that we see over the rest of this chapter into chapter 2. We see it down in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing by his disciples. We see it in verse, 30, or in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding uh, at 
Cana in, in Galilee. And so uh, when you kind of add all that up, right, um, John the Baptist receiving this delegation, uh, Jesus, we, kind of we, we meet Jesus the following day, Jesus calls his disciples a day later, Jesus calls more disciples a day after that, and then there's a three-day gap, one, two, three, uh, until the wedding uh, at Cana, so it's a week. It's a seven-day period that culminates in uh, Jesus's kind of public, you know, his first public miracle, the introduction of his ministry, which seems to have been done on purpose. John, you know, um, he's already been, uh, there's a lot of verbal literary parallels between John 1 and Genesis 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So there's a lot of parallels that John is drawing between the beginning of his gospel and the beginning of Genesis. The beginning of Genesis starts with a seven-day week that culminates with God having created the world, uh, resting from his work, and enjoying his creation. John's gospel starts with a seven-day week that culminates with Jesus having introduced himself to the world, kind of enjoying the, the fruit of uh, uh, his, his labor, as it were, enjoying uh, this, this wedding, this joyful celebration um, done by Jesus, who is, right, Gen- Genesis 1, God uh, ushers in creation and then celebrates it and enjoys it. Jesus in John 1 is the one who's going to usher in the new creation. And on day 7, we see him enjoying and celebrating as well, just like, like God did. So there's a lot of parallels, a lot of literary parallels between Genesis 1 and John 1. John's doing that on purpose um, because he wants to set uh, his gospel in the context of the grand kind of overarching story of narrative of drama of redemption that has been taking place uh, up until up until this point. So the next day, Jesus is coming toward, or I'm sorry, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." This is the first time, in fact, it's the only time uh, that. This title, the Lamb of God, is used uh, and is applied to Jesus in the Gospels. So it's used quite, John, this author, uses the, the language of, of a lamb quite a bit in the book of Revelation. Dozens of times throughout the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus as the Lamb. But this is the only time that John or any of the other Gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the Lamb of God to refer to, I mean, all kinds of titles that we see for Jesus throughout the Gospels. Messiah, Christ, the Chosen One, uh, Lord, Son of God, um, Jesus' own title that he uses to refer to himself a lot is uh, Son of Man, which itself is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, uh, which, which speaks to the divinity of, of Christ. So lots of titles that Jesus has throughout the Gospels, but this is the one that is used exclusively right here, the Lamb of, of God. Now, what exactly uh, is being referred to or what the connotation is for this title, Lamb of God, could be uh, any number of things. If you were to do a, a kind of a biblical theology or trace the theme of, of uh, sheep or lambs throughout the Bible, you'll see quite a few mentions of it throughout the Old Testament into the book of Revelation all of which are pregnant with theological significance. So, 
you know, calling Jesus the Lamb of God could be, probably is in one way or another, calling back to Genesis chapter 22, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his, uh, the, the son of the promise, Isaac. He says, I want you to go to Mount Moriah, the site where the temple would eventually be built, and load up on all the supplies for a, for a sacrifice. So Abraham takes Isaac, they load up everything, and Isaac says, where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for us. Of course, what Isaac doesn't know, what Abraham does, is that God has called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, to God as a test of Abraham's faith. And so Abraham is trusting that God's going to provide a a lamb of some kind or that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead after I offer him as a sacrifice. And they get there and and, uh, God actually does provide uh, a ram for them to sacrifice instead. But so that that language of, of the lamb of God could be a reference to that, right? God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. It could be a reference to the Passover in Exodus 12. God says, I'm going to come into Egypt. I'm going to kill the firstborn son in every single home in the entire country. But I'm going to pass over all of the homes that are occupied by people who trust God. And here's how I'm going to know. Here's what I want you to do. You have to take a lamb the day before, slaughter it as a sacrifice, take its blood, put it on the sides of the doorposts and on top of the doorpost. So you can almost imagine it kind of forms a, like if you were to put a cross, you know, if, there, if you were to put a cross right, right against the door, like the places where the cross would kind of touch the door frames, put blood there, and then when God, who is coming to visit his judgment and wrath against uh, sin, when he sees that blood that has been shed on behalf of the people that are in that house, God will pass by, he will pass over <coughs> that home and the people that are in it will be saved from the wrath of God. So the Lamb of God could be a reference to that, to the Passover Lamb. Could be a reference to uh, the first five, seven chapters of Leviticus talk about all different kinds of sacrifices that God wants the people of God to to offer. (coughs) It specifies that When a sacrifice is to be made, the priest is to take this spotless lamb, this lamb that is without blemish or defect, take it, stand in front of the people, and the purpose of this ceremonial rite is to uh, absolve the sins of the people, to, to accomplish forgiveness for the sins of the people. So the priest takes this, blemish, this, this blemish-free, this spotless lamb, stands in front of the people, the priest puts his hand on the, the head of the sacrificial animal, symbolizing the transference of sin from the people to the lamb. The sins of the people are laid on the lamb, and then the priest is to slaughter the lamb, kill it to atone for the sins and the guilt of the the people, sprinkle its blood everywhere. So lamb of God could be a reference to that. Lamb of God could be a reference to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
In Isaiah 53, we read that uh, there's going to be this person who uh, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He's going to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He would be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He would be pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities would be laid on him. It would be the will of the Lord to crush this person. He would bear the sins of many and make intercession for the transgressors. And then Isaiah says, he will be like a lamb led to slaughter. So the lamb of God could be a reference to Isaiah 53. Again, this author, John, uses the language of lamb quite a bit in Revelation to refer to, you know, Jesus being uh, the lamb seated on his throne as if he'd been slain. He's surrounded by just vast multitudes of worshipers and, and angels, and they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Later in Revelation 6, uh, the lamb, this is kind of a, uh, an irony here because you tend to think of uh, the, Jesus being the lamb as being gentle and meek and mild, but Revelation 6 describes Jesus as the lamb who is frankly terrifying. He's bringing his wrath against sin, and it's so bad, it's so scary that people are running away They're running to the mountains and they are begging the mountains and the boulders on the mountains to fall on them and crush them to death because they're saying that would be, it would be better to be crushed by rocks and mountains falling on us than for us to see the face of the lamb and to be confronted by his terrible wrath. So the lamb of God is the, is the coming king who's going to return and crush his enemies and be worshiped by his people. The language of the lamb is used in Revelation 19. Uh, The lamb is the one who marries his bride, the church. And they have this big marriage feast, this marriage uh, supper. The lamb is the one in Revelation 21 who lights up the kingdom of heaven for all of eternity with his brilliant glory. It says there's no need for the sun or any sort of artificial light because the the glory of the lamb will be uh, the light for the people of God. So lamb is used all throughout the Bible all the way from the very first book of Genesis, all the way to the very last book of Revelation. And when John the Baptist uses it here, he probably doesn't know a lot of what John the Apostle is going to write about the Lamb in Revelation, because that hasn't happened yet. Different guy. But everything that came before him, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, he knows all that. And is probably writing consciously. When he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he's probably drawing on all of that on purpose. All of those lambs, the beloved son of the father, the lamb that God would provide, the lamb whose blood saves from wrath, the lamb who takes our sin and dies in our place as our substitute, the lamb who was pierced for our transgressions to save his people. All of those lambs in one way or another point to this lamb, Jesus Christ, God the son incarnate as a human being to save us from our sin, the one true and final lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, like we said, uh, up until this point, we've looked at the incarnation as something that happened and we're kind of 
analyzing it and looking at how it happened and what exactly it was that happened. The Word became flesh. The light uh, came into the, the world. But this verse here gives us insight into why it happened, why the Lamb of God came into the world. And it was specifically to take away the sin of the world. Which comports with what the other gospel writers say Jesus' mission was. There's four gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life and, and ministry written by four different guys. Two were apostles, Matthew and John. Two were not apostles, Mark and Luke, but they were friends of, companions of apostles. Mark was a companion of Peter's. Luke was a companion of Paul's. Four different gospels, four different authors, four different perspectives, but they all agree on uh, the, the reason why Jesus came into the world. Matthew and Mark say the reason the Son of Man came was to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And John says the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. So, all four gospel authors agree Jesus came to save sinners, to forgive their sin, to take away their sin, to, to deal with their sin so that they could be reconciled to God, so that they could be in the presence of God and not experience the wrath and judgment of God because of their sin. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is the same, same exact verse, literally, as verse 15, if you kind of flip up a, a little bit in your, on, on your page there. So we, we kind of looked at it a little more in depth a couple of weeks ago. Don't need to worry about it again here, except just to suffice it to say that uh, Jesus says that uh, I'm sorry, John the Baptist says that Jesus is coming after him. After me comes a man. So he's speaking chronologically there. I was born before Jesus. My public ministry started before Jesus' public ministry started. I came first, as it, as it were. The next thing he says, though, is that uh, Jesus, or the, 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 the man who's coming after me, he will rank before me. He's higher than me. He's more important than me. His office is higher and more prestigious than my office. He's more glorious and more supreme than I am. And finally, this one who's going to come after me chronologically, but who's going to rank before me in terms of status and power and prestige, he himself is going to be, he himself is God. He's divine because he was before me. So here's this guy who simultaneously came after me. He was born after me, and yet somehow he was before me. I was born first, but before I was ever born, he was there. So in that one sentence, John the Baptist is saying, I'm about to introduce the Messiah. I'm about to introduce Jesus. And when I do, he's God. He came before me, but he's also a human being. He came after me, but he is more important than me. His ministry is more significant and more um, meaningful than mine, than mine is. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to 
Israel. So he's saying, prior to my public ministry, before I ever baptized anyone, before I called anyone to repentance, I did not know who the Messiah was. In fact, that's a big reason why I started my public ministry. It's so that the, the identity of the Messiah would be revealed, both uh, to the world, right, when he says that he might be revealed to Israel, uh, and to me, right, down in verse 30, 33. I didn't know who he was. So a big reason why John the Baptist came in, uh, started his public ministry was so that he could find out and so that the world could know the identity of the Messiah. Verse 33, he says, I myself did not know him. Same thing as 31. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So if John had not obeyed God and went out and undertaken this public ministry of calling people to repentance, confronting those in power, baptizing people who turn from their sins and want to trust in God, had John not done that, then presumably uh, no one would have ever known who the Messiah was. That was a big part of how the Messiah was going to be revealed to Israel, was through the Messiah being revealed to John, which is going to take place during his ministry of baptism. In fact, that's so, an interesting kind of trivia for this passage. Uh, this is the, the passage in the Gospel of John where we kind of read about and see about Jesus' baptism, but presumably it's already happened at this point. Because John says twice in 31 and 33, I did not know who the Messiah was. The reason why God sent me to baptize people was so that during the course of said baptizing, it would be revealed to me who the Messiah is so that I could reveal him to all of Israel. And the way, the specific way that I'm going to know who the Messiah is, is as I'm baptizing people, the one that I see the Spirit descend and remain, that's the, one, that's the Messiah. That's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John says, I didn't know who the Messiah was before my ministry started. I wouldn't, I'm not going to know. I didn't know until I see the Holy Spirit descend and remain on someone. We can tell from the other three Gospels that that happened, the Holy Spirit descending and remaining on Jesus at the exact moment when Jesus was baptized. It says, you know, Matthew, when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him uh, like, a, like a dove. And so... Prior to the moment when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. The moment when Jesus, the moment when John the Baptist did baptize Jesus is when he learned, realized that Jesus is the Messiah. But in verse 29, he already knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so presumably, the actual episode of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus probably took place, and John just didn't record it, between verses 28 and 29, right? Between uh, this delegation, or at some, at some point prior to 29, maybe between 28 and 29 seems like a, like a reasonable guess. So this, this passage, 29 to 34, is John recounting and describing and expounding upon this previous encounter that he had had with Jesus when he had baptized him, and when he had then learned and, be, and had kind of, it had been revealed to him, that Jesus is the Messiah. G John, of course, knew who Jesus was <coughs> before he baptized him. Um, 
but he, because they were cousins, so about the same age, so they probably hung out as kids and things like that. But that was kind of how and when and kind of where John the Baptist came to a full realization about, <coughs> about who Jesus was and about his identity as the Messiah. So, verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven <coughs> like a dove, and it remained on him. It remained on Jesus. So, the thing that God told me, verse 33, was going to happen, and the person it happened to was going to be the Messiah, is the thing that I saw happen with Jesus. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So it's worth just kind of taking it, pausing for a moment and considering the baptism of Jesus and considering this, this Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and remaining on Jesus and what that means and why it happened and why God intended to introduce Jesus to the world in that way. Because if you think, like, if you think about it, it's not readily apparent why Jesus had to be or chose to be baptized. Because John's baptism, it says, was a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of turning from sin, saying you're sorry for having sinned and resolving to not sin anymore and trusting God to forgive you for your sin. Which means that John's baptism for Jesus was effectively of no use, of no value. Jesus never sinned. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4, we have, a high, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who is tempted just like we are, but he never sinned. 1 John 3, Jesus appeared so that he might take away sins because in him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance designed explicitly for, specifically for sinners. Jesus was not a sinner. So why did Jesus get baptized? Well, that's what John asks him in Matthew 3. He says, why am I baptizing you? You should be the one baptizing. You're higher than me. You're better than me. You should be the one baptizing me, why, why are you coming to be baptized by me, Jesus? And Jesus says, let it be so, for this is required, this is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus says, Jesus didn't say, the reason why I need to be baptized is because I'm a sinner and I need to repent, like everyone else you're baptizing. He says, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, which is kind of an ambiguous phrase. The, you know, scholars and theologians kind of speculate any number of different reasons why Jesus was baptized. Uh, his baptism serves as an endorsement of John the Baptist's ministry. It's Jesus publicly saying to the whole world, uh, I'm with John the Baptist. He's with, with me. He's not crazy. He's a real prophet. Listen to him. <coughs> John the Baptist was, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist to identify with sinners Right, to, be, to be near to them and with them and among them. Right? It's kind of the next, 
the next step in the evolution of the incarnation, right? God, Jesus came to be near and among us, and the, his baptism was yet another uh, a version of that. To set an example, right? The reason Jesus calls us to be baptized when we uh, come to faith in Christ. And so when Jesus commands his people to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's not calling them to do anything that he himself did not do when he was here. Jesus' baptism specifically was one of, a, of an adult, uh, and it was done uh, by immersion, going under the water and coming back up. And so Jesus' baptism, uh, like uh, the baptism by immersion of adults that's done today, Jesus' baptism was symbolic of his coming death and resurrection, right? Uh, Jesus died, he was buried in the ground, and then three days later he rose up from the grave. Jesus, when he was baptized three years prior to that, was buried under the waters of baptism and then raised up. And so his baptism kind of anticipated and set the expectation for his coming death and burial and resurrection. Maybe the most uh, compelling or the most um, yeah interesting reasons of why Jesus was baptized was to establish himself as the new Israel, the, the, the fulfillment of what God intended Israel to do and be in the world. God called Israel, God initially called Abraham to go to the promised land. Eventually he called Israel out of slavery in Egypt to go back to the promised land. And when they did, they were they crossed through the Red Sea, or they were baptized, as it were, as they went through the Red Sea, and then they spent 40 years uh, wandering in the wilderness. Baptized in the Jordan River, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he immediately goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by, by Satan. And so it's almost like Jesus, in, uh, in doing this uh, baptism followed by uh, 40 days in the wilderness, is kind of him saying, everything that God called Israel to do, I'm doing it. Right? God called Israel to uh, receive the blessing of God and then to channel and mediate that blessing out to the world. Everyone who blesses your name, uh, it, they will be blessed through through you. Receive God's grace and then broadcast God's grace out to the world. And so Jesus, when he's getting baptized and going out into the wilderness, he's saying, I'm the new Israel. I am the true Israel. Everything that God called Israel to do, I'm doing. I am the one through which the grace and glory and blessing of God is going to be mediated out to the, the world. So Jesus was baptized to set an example and to anticipate his death and resurrection and to identify with sinners and all of these different reasons and to establish himself as the new Israel, the true Israel, who's going to mediate God's blessing and God's grace out to the, the world. But then it says, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and remained on him. And so... The other Gospels mention that God the Father speaks from heaven at that moment. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so you can kind of see all three members of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity kind of there together. 
dialoguing, participating, acting together, Jesus being baptized, the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending on him. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus because Jesus as, as God, like Jesus as God did not need the Holy Spirit to do anything. Jesus was omnipotent. Jesus was sovereign. Jesus could do whatever he wanted. He didn't need to borrow from or rely on the Father or the Spirit to do anything that he did. But, but Jesus had two natures, right? We talked about it last week. He, um, the, the doctrine of the hypostatic union says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so Jesus, as God, needs nothing from anyone. He is equal with, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. But Jesus, as a human being, in those moments when Jesus was not, was choosing not to access the full power and authority of his divinity, uh, as a full human being, needed to rely on, depend on, be empowered by, be filled with the Holy Spirit, just like you and I need to do. For a Christian today to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? We need the Holy Spirit to give us a new heart and new desires and, and uh, to give us power to glorify God, power to you know, uh, live a godly life of ongoing repentance. And so we're filled by the Holy Spirit as we uh, practice the spiritual disciplines, read the Bible, pray, come to church, be encouraged in the Word, and these kinds of things. But in order for the Christian today to live a godly Christian life, he has to be filled by the Holy Spirit, which is something that kind of comes and goes, right? Like we can be filled to increasing measures the more that we walk with God and enjoy his presence. Jesus was, in his human, Jesus uh, in his divinity needed nothing from anyone, but Jesus in his humanity needed to be filled by and empowered by and indwelt by and led by the Holy Spirit, just like any other human being. And so the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism was kind of a a picture of it, an illustration of that reality, right? That Jesus is reliant upon the Holy Spirit, he's dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, indwells him, fills him, remains in him for his entire life so that he can glorify God and live the life that God has called him to live. So John says, uh, I baptized Jesus, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It remained on him, and that was this trigger. That kind of helped me realize that this is the Messiah because God had told me, the person that you see the Spirit descend on, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now this, this idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit is worth pausing and, and thinking about for a minute as, as well. What we know, at least from a cursory glance at this passage and the one before it and the, the, other, the other passages where Jesus is baptized in the other Gospels, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something different than and better than being baptized in water. Because John says over and over, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me 
Uh, I'm not worthy even to untie his sandals. The one coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with fire. So there's something different about John's baptism in water and Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' is, is better. John's baptism is a, an outward sign of an inward reality. Whereas Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit is itself that inward reality. It is that new life, that new birth, the Holy Spirit being poured into you, being immersed in and kind of filled up with the Holy Spirit to change us and, and sanctify us. Now, the idea of uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, again, part of the reason why it's worth pausing on is because uh, that's been misunderstood and, and kind of misapplied, particularly in the last 50 to 100 years. Um as being some other thing that happens in the Christian life after you become a Christian. The second blessing or the second, some sort of second event that happens later, right? You become a Christian, you're forgiven of your sins, you're going to heaven, that happens. And then at some point later, you have this second blessing, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and maybe that's when you stop sinning, or maybe that's when you... Uh, become more powerful and effective in ministry and sharing the gospel with others. Or maybe that's uh, when you start uh, speaking in, in tongues or something like that. And, and a lot of Christians will say, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some later point in your Christian life where you kind of graduate from JV Christian to like full varsity uh, Christian. When you read the New Testament, that's not what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or maybe more accurately, uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit is. It's not a second blessing or a second event that happens later. It's something that happens to every single Christian at the exact moment when they become a Christian. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says that uh, we are all baptized by Christ in one spirit into one body. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens when Jesus, right? We trust in Jesus and Jesus pours his Holy Spirit into our heart, right? Gives us new life, new desires, newfound love of God, newfound hatred of sin. We're, we, we are now regenerated so that we can trust in Jesus and walk with him. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's synonymous with coming to faith in Christ and having your life changed by Jesus. So John the Baptist is saying, my baptism doesn't do that. When, when, our, when our church baptizes someone in water, it doesn't do that. It, it's, it's, a, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. If you wear a wedding ring... You are not, I forgot my wedding ring today, actually. So this is a perfect example. I am still married. I'm not not married because I forgot my wedding ring. It's at home on my kitchen counter. I'm still married. And if I was single and I wore a ring, I would not just magically be married. It's an outward sign of a, of a reality that is itself distinct from it. So that's the baptism that the church practices today. It's basically the church saying, we believe the gospel, and we are declaring that this person believes the gospel with us, if it's a believer, or, or we're declaring that this person is the covenant child of parents who believe the gospel uh, with us, in the case of infant baptism. But uh, either way, there's, the church is not saying, uh, you, we are 
we have somehow assured uh, that you're going to heaven. We did something to make that happen. The church is saying, uh, God has saved you, and we are baptizing you as an outward sign of that inward reality. But Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit is itself that inward reality when Jesus saves sinners and gives them new life so that they can be reconciled to God and live eternal life with God. So John is saying, God sent me to baptize people with water to do this outward sign of the inward reality so that along the way, someone would stick out as being the one who is going to actually accomplish that inward reality. The baptism with the Holy Spirit, whereby people are saved, their sins are forgiven, whereby they are reconciled to God. Along the way of me baptizing people with water, I'm going to see who it is that is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Lo and behold, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that that baptism is it's, it's Jesus which again, presumably happened sometime before verse 29, which is why G- John can look at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the... He's saying, behold, there's the person who the Spirit descended on when I baptized him. Therefore, there's the person who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So this is yet another title, another designation for Jesus, right? We've already seen the Word of God, the Creator of all things, Light of the world, Source of all light, the Word become flesh, the revelation of grace and truth, Christ, the Messiah, Lamb, right? We've seen a lot of them. Now the Son of God, which some people usually in cults and things, uh, are going to argue that this means that Jesus himself was not God because he's the son of God. So God is God, and Jesus is uh, some lesser being who himself is uh, the or a son of God. That's not what uh, John the Baptist is saying. You can almost use this language of Jesus being the son of God interchangeably to say that Jesus is God. No one else is called the Son of God in this particular way, just Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus is healing a man on the Sabbath. And all the religious leaders come to him. They're all cranky. They confront him. They say, uh, you can't heal people on the Sabbath. There are rules. what, What do you think you're doing? And Jesus says, my father... My father is always at work, even to this very day, even on the Sabbath day, my father is uh, at work and I too am working. And then it says, for this reason, they tried to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, which that itself was offensive to them and they wanted to kill him for that, but not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal with God. To call Jesus the Son of God, or for Jesus to call God his own Father, is not saying that Jesus is less than God. It's saying that Jesus is God, and that God the Father and Jesus Christ, God the Son, are both equal members of the the Trinity. They are distinct, they are separate, 
They have different roles. One occupies the role of father. With, hu- with human beings, father and son implies the father existed before the son, right? You can't, ha- like, if you don't have the father to, to, you know, father the son, then you can't have the son, right? He, with, within our human context, uh, baked into the words father and son is that father came first, son came later. But that's not the case with God, right? God the Father and God the Son have both existed for all of eternity, and God the Father has been God the Son's Father for all of eternity, and God the Son has been God the Father's Son for all of eternity. They've, they've always been Father and Son in that relationship together for all of eternity, and they are both fully divine, fully God, two equal members of the, the Trinity. So Jesus is God the Son, God the Father is God the Father. And John the Baptist is saying, this is the Son of God, not less than God, but this is God himself. But he is specifically, of of those persons within the Trinity, this is God the Son. So again, uh, to kind of glance back at the, at the, all, all the first 34 verses of the, of the Gospel of John, we see a lot of titles, a lot of designations uh, kind of given to Jesus. He is the, the Word of God. He is the, the Lamb of God that has come into the world. He is the light of the world. He is uh, the, the Word become flesh dwelling among us, revealing the glory and the grace and the truth uh, of God to the world. Lots of titles uh, that, that, uh, it, that identify who Jesus is, but one title and one sentence that says what he came to do. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God who himself will serve as the sacrifice of atonement, He's going to take our sins upon himself. He's going to be slaughtered in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, being treated as if he was guilty of the sins that we have committed so that God can look at us and treat us as if we have lived the perfect life of Christ. When God looks at Jesus, he sees Every sin that every person has ever committed, when God looks at his people, he sees the perfect, spotless, flawless righteousness of Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the the sins of the world, takes the sins of his people and puts them onto himself puts them onto his own shoulders, bears the wrath of God, absorbs the wrath of God. If you take every ounce of suffering that every sinner ever will or hypothetically ever would have experienced in hell, if you take all, all of this infinite amount of suffering that is to be suffered by sinners in hell and somehow compress an infinite amount down into a, a three-hour span of time, that is what Jesus experienced and endured for us on the cross. All the wrath of God that is rightly deserved by every person who would ever trust in Jesus poured out on Jesus. The, 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 
the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on us is drained in its entirety in a matter of hours on Jesus because he is the Lamb of God who took away our sins. And now because of that, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we will find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Friends, if you trust in Christ, it is literally, physically impossible for you to experience any wrath or judgment from God because of your sins. If you trust in Jesus, God's wrath has already been satisfied. It's already been dealt with. It's already been exhausted. You deserve the full measure of God's wrath, but you will only ever receive mercy. And that's what we remember. That's what we celebrate. That's what we trust in together during the Advent season, that that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the Lamb of God has taken away our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into the world to save us. We thank you for giving your life as a ransom, for taking our place as a substitute so that we can enjoy the eternal life that you, Jesus, deserved. We thank you, and we come to you this morning, Lord, placing the full weight of our salvation onto your shoulders, leaning on you, resting on you, casting ourselves upon the rock that is Jesus because you are our only hope. We thank you and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.